Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. On today's episode of the What Fuels You podcast, I'm sitting down with Liz Dunn. Liz started her career as a software engineer at Microsoft, but left after realizing she's more of a scrappy, small company type of person. Always wanting to do something with cities and buildings, Liz started Dunn & Hobbs, a real estate development company in 1998. Over the last 20 years, she has created several developments, particularly in Capitol Hill, while maintaining the character and uniqueness of the buildings and neighborhoods. Among these are Melrose Market, Chop House Row, The Cloud Room, and Cloud Studios, where we are currently recording. Hi, Liz. Hi, Sean. Welcome. You're the best. Okay, we're going to start with Rapid Fire. Are you ready? Uh -uh, As ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) Best gift you've ever received? Oh, my grandpa gave us a puppy when I was in high school. He showed up with this cardboard box in the middle of winter. Oh, my mom could have grandpa. Yeah, and you're like, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, she was thanks, but no thanks. But like it was too late. What did you name the puppy? Patrick. Oh, cute. It's like yeah. a man, a like man a dog. Man dog. A man, man dog. Um, skiing or snowboarding? Skiing for sure. But you used to be snowboarder. Only for one season. I got to the uh, point where I could turn both ways and said, "Okay, I got this," but I don't like it. I'm going to go back to skiing. For those listening, um, Liz and I met up in Whistler, and she's a baller skier. I'm very into that. <laughs> I'm jealous. Um, are you a morning or a night person? I am totally a night person. Person. You know, there was this article in the New York Times recently that explained that night people will never be retrained and no one should try to retrain us. Yeah. And that, you know, we are also just awesome in our own way. I love it. What time do you go to bed? I usually go to bed by midnight. So it's not crazy. When I was younger, like when I was in my 20s working at Microsoft, I did all my best work at four in the morning. It was insane. So were you calling that night or morning? <laughs> well, it was still the day before for me, usually. And then I'd go to bed and then I'd get up, you know, sometime midday. Nice. If you could teach any subject, what would it be? You know, I teach now and I love it. And I teach the value of small-scale real estate development, like why cities should want it. Oh, interesting. Or at UW? Yeah, yeah. I guess lecture at UW in nice. the Foster School and in the Renstad School. Very cool. And yeah. what about if you were teaching, like, elementary school? Oh, probably math. I love the cleanness of math. Yeah, it's you very know? measurable. And... It's very measurable. And kids who think that they don't get it, they they totally do. Best concert you've ever attended? Okay. that That is such a tough one. I'm going to go back to the first concert I ever attended because it's hilarious. Nazareth and Aerosmith oh, at nice. Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. So that was pretty memorable. I was like 15 or 16 years wow. old. And I've just been, I've been to a lot of amazing concerts over the years. The, well, that's per, why the I Pearl asked. Jam concerts last summer were pretty memorable, right? So there's, how's that? That's the bookend. That's like yeah. the first concert I ever went to and probably the most recent big concert that I've been to. Yeah, I know you love music. So that's why I wanted to ask you that. What word do people use most often to describe you? God, I have no idea. Well, I know what word. I mean, you're just 
real. I don't know. Oh, that's awesome. I, I feel like everyone really feels that you're very humble and accessible and just cool. I don't know. Well, you know, Shauna, that's actually awesome to hear because I'd like to think that I do keep it real. You never know what people say say about you, but if that's it, that is awesome. Yeah, and I, think I, and I like feel that. like hopefully true. Yeah. I'm going to just take you back to early days, to childhood. I know you're from Canada mm -hmm. um, and Canadians have a lot of pride in being from Canada. How how do you feel that that has shaped you? I think Canadians grow up with this sense of empathy and generosity that is sort of built in culturally. And that's true whether you were born in Canada or whether you were an immigrant. There is one of the things that Canadians pride themselves on is that generosity of spirit that sort of absorbs everybody into this very not monolithic but multicultural society. Canada is a fairly young country, so maybe the reason that we're – a little bit better at that than other places is there's not a lot of baggage. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. I have not met a Canadian that I don't like, I have to say. Yeah. They're I, all really likable. They, they're pretty nice. Some, yeah. Sometimes to a fault. But Maybe. the cliche is true. Yeah. We're, we're all pretty nice. You're nice, but you're not the kind of person I would think would be taken advantage of. Or yeah, but see, this is, the, this is the good thing about having been in America for 30 years is, yeah, you're like, you know, I've got a backbone. So, yeah. you know. And so tell me about your childhood. Is it um, something you look back fondly on? Absolutely. Um you know, I grew up on a farm. My parents were both teachers. There was not a ton of money, but there was a ton of, um, obviously, uh, academic motivation on their part, you know, for me to be an overachiever academically. So there, was, there was quite a bit of pressure there, but, you know, that's completely understandable. I spent my entire childhood and especially my teenage years walking that line between getting good grades and getting in all kinds of trouble, some of which they knew about and some of which they didn't. So I was like the bad kid pretending to be the good kid. <laughs> and um, I was oh, the good kid being the good kid. Yeah. Oh, well, see, well, that would have been a lot easier on my parents. I only I ran away from home once. I only got kicked out once. In the end, I, I made it all the way through. And yeah. I've never seen two parents more relieved than the day I went off to college. And they were hilarious. They literally washed their hands of me that very day. That's hilarious. My parents were laid back. They were very clear on their values. But they also were the types who were like, if you, hey, if you want to sneak out, no problem. Just let us know where you're going to be so we don't worry. And it just kind of lost its allure for me. I'm like, ugh. Well, and so I never did sneak out. I think that's actually really good parenting. Yeah. Were you the oldest? No, I was the youngest. Yes. My so brother was a little more naughty. So this is exactly the difference between your upbringing and mine. I was the oldest. And you know how parents of oldest kids are like, they're super sure you're going to screw it up. Yeah. And as parents, they're super sure they're going to screw it up. So they're right. really tense. Yes. And, you know, with my younger brother, they just didn't even care anymore because yeah. they've been through And the was he rigor. naughty? Or like no, and so he was like you. They were like, okay, sort of just do whatever you want and tell us where you are. Yeah. And, you know, plus there's a little bit of sexism there, right? Yeah. Like he's a boy and I was a girl. And so the, he was a totally good kid because just like you, yeah. they'd taken all the edge out of it for him. And, and he was just a different personality than That's me. That's so just funny. Just a more laid back Is he kid. in Canada? He's in Canada. He's a veterinarian of large animals in southern Alberta. He the takes farm care must of, have shaped him. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. We grew up in a really rural environment, and my dad commuted to the city to teach college. Wow. I didn't realize that. And so was it one of those homes with, like, no TV? They weren't 
quite that strict, but there was a lot of organic gardening, and we were forced to eat like a lot of wormy apples and weird <laughs> vegetables that only like hippie academic parents would grow. If you know what I mean. That is so funny. Mm-hmm. And so, tell me about University of Waterloo. That's where you went for undergrad. Yeah, is that kind of an obvious choice for Canadians? Is it, it is. like the UW of? It's like the MIT. The MIT. Of Canada. So it's, it's a the, really good school. It's the super nerdy science and math school. Okay. Science, math, and engineering. It has other great faculties too, but mm-hmm. it's really famous for science, math, and engineering. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to the fact that my, my parents really did not have a ton of money then. My dad didn't graduate from grad school till I was nine or 10 years old. And so they were catching up on their own, you know, student loans and mortgage payments and everything else. And so I paid my way through school. But the great thing about Waterloo, besides being the best science and math school in Canada, is they have a five-year co-op program where you work oh. half the time and go to school half the time. Where and did so you work? you literally can earn your way through. Well, this is how I ended up at Microsoft. So I did get a full-ride scholarship based on my um, math abilities mm-hmm. that paid my tuition. Mm-hmm. So that's Were great. Were you always into math? Obviously, all the research that shows that women and girls in general don't consider themselves good. And so it's this like kind of self-fulfilling it's, prophecy. It's absolutely a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's all conditioning. Like, I drives me insane. I was so lucky to have two parents who were like, you are really good at math. Mm-hmm. And then a bunch of teachers who were like, oh, my God, you're so awesome at math. Mm-hmm. So I did never you ever, doubted ever, myself. Did you ever have any teachers doubt you? Never. And I teachers was so, that shaped you? Teachers that shaped me. My high school math teacher, Mr. Dotton, you know, I... I, to that day, he's passed away, but I mean, God bless that man. He was so excited for me. You know, he coached me. Canada has these national math contests, which is great because you kind of know where you stand nationally. Mm-hmm. I had these teachers that coached me for these contests. And so I knew, I kind of knew I was hot stuff in math, which is great. I didn't mean that in an arrogant way, but it was really good to have that confidence from oh, for early sure. on. For sure. And so what about your interest in computer science? My dad was really good about knowing, seeing, you know, he was in a college environment that um, computers, personal computers were kind of coming up on his radar when I was in, say, grade 10 or grade 11. And he brought home some kind of Apple. It was like maybe a Lisa, some early Apple. He was able to borrow it from the college for a month and he brought it home and he gave it to me and he said, here, like you can write little programs, you can do this and just bang around on it. And at exactly the same time my school got this crazy old mainframe computer that you could, like, fill out the pencil cards and feed them in. And so, you know, these same great teachers who were coaching me in math were like, okay, we're going to take this group of students. We're going to teach them how to, like, code these little programs on the cards. So life is timing, right? Same time my dad brings home a computer from the college, my teachers are getting me to write these little programs at school. And... You know, my parents were super keen on me getting the math scholarship. Mm-hmm. That was obviously, like, monetarily a big deal. But my dad was also like, no, y- you can do computer science. You don't just yeah. have to be a high school math teacher. Like, yeah. there are careers now for people in math. So I wanted to be an architect, by the way. Yeah. And I had come home from a high school job fair, and I'm like, I want to be an architect because I'd always, I'd always drawn buildings, you know, as a hobby. Like... And, That's uh, not surprising. And my parents were like, no way, because you're going to take the damn math scholarship. You know, and then my dad was trying to convince me, computer science, computer science. And they said, and then you can do whatever you want. But, like, right now under our roof, you're going <laughs> to do this. I'm always telling my little nieces, like, it's the contract between parent and teenager that 
you know, they're responsible for you up until that moment. And you can understand why they want to put you on one path and not another. And you kind of have to suck that up till you're 18 years old. And later in life, you get to make a different set of choices if that's what you want. But I'm entirely grateful to my parents for setting me. As you should be. I mean, you're unique, right? How many many women were in your program? Yeah, well, Waterloo, um, and I knew this before I went, we were... We were less than one in five. Like, we were less than 20% of that. So you started to say that's what brought you to Microsoft. But you also have all these other degrees. So where in that? Well, so that was my undergrad, and that is what brought me to Microsoft. The co-op program was really well-known in Canada. So these Canadian employers knew it was an awesome way to get really talented but cheap help on these four-month work terms. And so I worked for IBM, and then I went to work for an investment bank, um, helping the investment bankers with some information system stuff, like writing them programs so that Mm -hmm. they could, like, research their companies and stuff. And then um, during that time, Microsoft had hired a couple full-time Waterloo people who said, oh, my God, you're totally missing out on this co-op thing. And so they showed up, and I was the first co-op student. So they showed up to recruit at Waterloo for co-op students, and I was the first one along with one other engineering students. The two of us go off to Seattle. No one, you know, from Waterloo's ever gone for a work term. A student Did you know anything term. about Seattle? No, and in fact, I was confused about where it was. I, th- I had it confused with Denver. So Canadians accuse Americans of being bad at geography, but can I tell you, like, Canadians are just as bad at U.S. geography. Right. And I um, I go home that weekend after I interview. It was a really fun, cool interview. And I'm like, hey, I interviewed with this really cool company, and it's in Seattle, and it's in the Rocky Mountains, and I'm going to learn to ski. And my dad's like, Seattle's not in the Rocky Mountains. Seattle's, like, two hours south of Vancouver, and he pulls the atlas off the bookshelf and opens it up and says it. And how many people were at Microsoft at that time? Um, When I was, my first uh, work term, I was employee number 800 on my badge. That was in Redmond. There were people internationally, so the company must have been like maybe 1,200 or 1,500. I don't know. But there were 800 in Redmond. They had literally just moved. When I landed in January, they had just moved like a month or two before to the Redmond the new Redmond campus, which they just demolished. Yes. It was super fun. I mean, it's it's really a unique experience to yeah. be early Microsoft. And it's super challenging. Like and super I, challenging. Like I landed and I was like, okay, now I've met my match. Like yeah. now I'm really going to get pushed. And, I've had a few people on the podcast that have been early Microsoft. And actually, I think your name has come up. Jonathan Spazzato. Yeah. Richard Tate. Yeah. Richard and I, um, um, and when I was, Richard wasn't, neither of those guys were there when I was interning, but by the time I came back to work for them full time in 1988, Richard and I had our offices next door to oh, each other. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall. And you two were, were so fun. Our night out, our night owl existence, um, stealing food it. from each other. And So while you were at Microsoft, is that when you got your master's and MBA? So I, after I'd been at Microsoft about five years, I was feeling kind of burnout. And I was feeling also like I'd been taken off this path that I had wanted to do an MBA kind of right after undergrad. In fact, Microsoft made me a full-time job offer and I turned it down. It's so funny. I said, no, no, I'm going to do go do an MBA. Um, I was super like overly confident that I was going to get into the program that I wanted to get into. And I didn't. I got a two-year deferral. And I had to go back to them and say, just kidding. Um, just kidding. Can I come work for you for two years full time? And they were like, of course you can. So that was great. And um, 
And, you know, and then stuff happens. Like you get onto projects that are really interesting. And so five years goes by in a flash. And, mm-hmm. then, and then I start to get antsy. What types of projects were you working on at Microsoft? Um, I worked all over the company. I started as a coder. And so I worked on one of the later versions of DOS and then the first version of Macword um, on the development team. And then OS2, which is where I work with Richard Tate, mm-hmm. and uh, Windows. And by that time, I'd kind of segued from coding into product design. And so I did a lot of work on um, sort of futuristic versions of Windows, um, you know, always kind of looking two or three versions out. And then there was an opportunity to move over to the the consumer division and start a kids software business. That was an interesting experiment for Microsoft. We developed two products. One was a painting uh, kind of graphic design product for kids. And the other one was a creative writing product for kids. And... um, we did a lot of things right, and we did a lot of things wrong, and it was a really, really great learning experience. Um, but I think we didn't understand how to tackle that business. The channel marketing mm-hmm. thing was new to us, you know, just that particular channel. We were still trying to figure out the consumer business as a whole, so arguably jumping into the kids' part of the consumer right. business before we even knew a really anything area about consumer. Yeah. What happened at the same time is the company was also having to shift its focus and its resources to the web because it was just becoming clear that a lot of this content delivery was going to happen on the web. So that was really hard and really interesting and fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And I was, But then I was feeling kind of antsy and burnt mm-hmm. out. Were so, you feeling successful there? I was feeling successful. It's definitely feeling like I was working my ass off, excuse my French. But um, so that's why at the end of five years, I was super burnt out. And I asked them for a sabbatical to go to business school at that point. And it was hilarious because it turned out no one had ever asked for a sabbatical before. And did I, they pay for your MBA? Well, I'll tell you, it was no. But we made a um, we made it. So initially, to excuse the profanity, but the reaction was, WTF, no one's ever asked for a sabbatical. Why do you need to go get a business school degree? Are you not challenged here? Are we not giving you enough um, product seniority? Are you like, whatever it is you think you're going to learn at business school, you're going to learn 10 times over here. Like they, they were completely confused. And I'm talking all the way to the top of the company, completely confused. And we're like, you know, no way. And I think what happened is they realized I was dead serious and I was just going to walk out the door anyway. And I'd been accepted at that point into a business school that actually turned out to be the one that I decided I really wanted to go to, which was in Europe. And mm-hmm. It's called INSEAD. It's, it's a great international business school. I think it's one of those moments in life, actually, where if you have complete conviction, the people on the other side of the table can totally sense it. And they know you're not bluffing. And as long as you're not bluffing, you know, you're going to prevail in that situation. Like, I was going to go so you no did. matter what. And so I did. And so we ended up... Uh, striking a deal where I kept all my stock options and I got paid part-time and did some consulting work for them while I was there and it worked out for everybody. Then I went back to Microsoft and did another, I don't know, three, four years of amazing work for them before I, I, you know, before I did a total pivot. And what was the thinking when you did the total pivot? Where was your head at that time? You know... Microsoft had become a really big company. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners, like the pivot that we're talking about is to real estate development. Yeah. So completely out of tech and into real estate development. Mm-hmm. And um, and who were the big players in Seattle at that time? You know, that was that was 20 years ago. And they 
were completely different than they are now. There were a lot of family-owned, multi-generational companies that were doing real estate development, but the national players had not arrived. And I don't want to offend anybody, but I remember looking around the city at that time and thinking, it the development, the design, it feels very parochial. It feels very, I mean, provincial. And I know mm-hmm. that's, that's going to sound a little bit judgy, but... Um, it didn't feel very urban. Mm-hmm. I would say that there were a lot of long-term family-owned companies mm-hmm. who had done suburban development and were then trying to bring that game to, to the downtown, city. to right. the city, and it wasn't working. Right. Well, I have to say I left Seattle for 20 years, and when I came back, you know, some of these projects that you've created make me feel like the city feels way more alive. So thank you. Well, Because <laughs> I was looking for a more of a city experience here. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that, and I was feeling the same way, and I had at that point lived, you know, uh, I'd spent a fair chunk of time in Toronto, which is a very urban city with a historic core, and Paris. And and in my job, I worked for Microsoft based in Paris for uh, a period of time where I traveled to, I was responsible for all these European markets and traveled to all these great European cities. And so at that point, I'd been totally, you know, I mean, brainwashed in a good way about dense, granular urban fabric and what a real city looks like and what real city streets are meant to look like. And Seattle had just had an unfortunate history, like many American cities have been hollowed out in the 60s and 70s and thinking they needed to tear down all their great old buildings to make room for parking lots because, like, everyone was going to drive. And so it's just this bizarre thing that we thought we needed to hollow out half of our downtowns to make room for the cars. And in doing so, we kind of destroyed the downtowns. The fabric. The fabric that we thought people were going to drive to. It's, It's a conundrum. Thankfully, most American cities are, you know, on the rebound and have realized that that was a mistake and um, are filling in all those missing teeth. Mm -hmm. And Seattle was just on the cusp of doing that when I started into real estate in Seattle Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So it was great. Great And so you started Dunn and Hobbs. And so who's Hobbs? Hobbs was my dog. You know, when you start a company in Washington State or in any, you know, you have to make sure your company name is unique. Mm -hmm. And there are... It turns out a lot of duns, none of whom I'm related to, but mm-hmm. there's a lot of duns. I know there. some duns. Yeah. And so, like, all the all the obvious names were taken, like, mm-hmm. dun investments. So you were 100% woman-owned company. 100% woman and dog-owned companies. Women and dog-owned and self-funded? Self-funded, initially. And self-funded for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you even know how to write projections and do a business model for the business? So here's my little plug for the University of Washington's real okay. estate program. I can't wait to hear. Which is phenomenal. Dun, there is dun, dun, There is this... Um, professor who taught real estate at the in the Department of Urban Planning for decades and decades, and he just passed away, and it was a huge deal. His name is George Rolfe. And this was before uh, UW had a real estate school, which it does now because of him. And uh, But he was teaching this series of courses that I found out about, and I went and took his courses and can earned a certificate in urban planning and real estate, like a graduate certificate. At that point, I had an MBA, so I kind of had the finance background. I had the general business background, mm-hmm. but I didn't have the real estate finance, and I didn't know how to, to your exact question, I didn't know how to make a real estate model. So that was that was all George, and I use a version of his model to this day. Um, so, you know, he taught me well. I also feel like I am good at asking for help. Mm-hmm. and You also have a really good eye, and you have a good gut. I like to think I have a good gut, 
I also, um, I try not to impose too much on people, but at that time, you know, every developer, real estate developer that I came into contact with, you know, I would ask them questions and ask them for advice and mm -hmm. always try to figure out how I could, you know, pay them back in mm -hmm. some way. And Was there anyone who kind of took you under their wing besides, obviously, yeah, the, your uh, professor? There's this guy called Val Thomas who did a lot of really nice apartment and condo buildings around town that you would recognize, and I had dinner with him last night. Oh. He's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so were there any females for you to look up to at that time? Not really. Um, are there today? There are. You know, um, just yesterday, funny you asked, before I went out for dinner with Val, three of my real estate developer women friends and I hosted a happy hour just for women developers, so women who literally have an ownership stake in their companies. So we narrowed it down to those women with skin in the game in their own companies, building buildings, and um, we had over 20. That's fantastic. It's not bad. That's and, not bad at all. Did and, you, you have know, it at Chop House Row? No, we, we – um, I, I – I, I worry sometimes that people that my whole life is so chop house yeah. row centric that people yeah. are are um, going to get tired of me always inviting them to the cloud room or to chop house row. Although I they have never to say, do. If, for those who have not visited, please visit. It, it's the coolest. Tell us about the cloud room because I obviously love the cloud room and it's the best. And the, the bartender makes amazing drinks. Yeah, the bartender is um, Jay Keener is amazing. He's so, like famous. He's famous, and he's uh, you know it's been four years, and uh, and he's kind of the center of our bar program and he seems to love his little perch up at the cloud room it's a members-based co-working space it's a little bit different than other co-working spaces that your listeners have probably been to we made it very comfortable and luxurious but not in a way that um, isn't intended to promote like hard work and productivity and um, it does make you want to be want to create that yes, when you're in there and also, I was going to say a lot of creative collaboration and Brian Paquette did the interiors right yeah Brian and I collaborated I have to say I do all my interior design myself but then I have people like Brian in my life who I can call to say am I off say, track am I off track, track yeah. or I need help with this like yes. the first set of light fixtures I put in were awful and I called Brian and I said Come help rescue me. And he found me. He's got a great eye also. He is a I love fantastic Brian. designer. So um, we like to consider ourselves the creative um, workspace in Seattle. And, you know, we started out with this vision that it would feel like more than a co-working space. It's got this uh, super comfy lounge and bar that people, you know, at the end of a hard day of work can, re can retire mm -hmm. to the lounge and have a drink. And it's got a gorgeous outdoor deck. Um, I love with the, the view of deck. the city. So it feels very special. It's up on, you know, the upper floor of the Chop House Row building. And so once you're up there, I think what our members love about it is they really are very productive. They feel ensconced in this space that is supporting them to do um, mm -hmm. their work. And, and it feels collaborative also. It's very collaborative. And I think that that term gets thrown around a lot and I think we make it true mm -hmm. so partly because just the nature of the mix of the members and because we make the extra effort to make sure they know each other mm -hmm. because we see connections that they might not and the, the other move we made when we first opened because we also consider ourselves the local place that even if you're a newcomer you would want to join because you will get to know quote real Seattleites and, mm -hmm. what, and what we mean by that is that we are, are dedicated very to... capital hill based in a certain way. So we gave 
free memberships to all the Stranger Genius Award winners when we open. Because um, this stranger for 10 years gave six Genius Awards a year to cultural and artistic leaders. So we've got musicians and filmmakers and um, writers and journalists and mm-hmm. in the mix um, who came to us through the stranger. And we collaborate still with the stranger because they're our neighbors and Tim Keck is a really good friend. And, That's perfect. And so when you started Denon Hobbs, what was your first big project that kind of put you on the map? I did this crazy little project at 13th and Union um, that Dave Miller of Miller Hall designed. It's very distinctive. It's a condominium project. Don't ask me why. I thought a for sale condominium project, high end, um, was the, the way to get my feet wet. Um, and Dave hadn't done one either. It was like the blind leading the blind a little bit. Now I will say... Uh, I lost money on it, and here's why. We finished the building on September 13th, 2001, so two days after 9-11. And um, so these high-end, eight high-end condos sat there, sat for over a year. So my partner and I had to move out of our house, and this is every developer has their first project horror story, and this is mine. I make my poor partner move out of the house because I can't make my mortgage payments because I've spent all the money I have at this point. All we have left is the house and we rent the house and we move into the project and we ended up living there in different units for over two years. Now, it's a gorgeous place to live with. But still. But still. An everyday reminder of. Yes. And so the story has a happy ending. Contractor gets paid. The bank gets paid. I lose my equity, but we end up selling all the units I, you know, moved back into our house and I live to buy another property with the help of the same bank. As a real estate developer, you work with a lot of lenders over the years, yeah. but that's my plug for the local Wells Fargo folks oh, nice. because they got me off the ground, basically. Yeah. In yeah. the late 90s and early 2000s, they were super yeah. supportive. So that was the first project. And when did you take on some of these more um, visible kind of community projects? Yeah, the Chop House Row project is actually an accumulation of six or seven properties that uh, I acquired over a period of time and then redeveloped over a period of time. And so unlike doing what most developers would do, which is accumulate all these adjacent properties and then tear them all down and build one massive box, I literally incrementally did it piece by piece and capped the granularity and the, you know, the distinctive buildings intact. But what it's I did so do, cool. yeah, what I did do was chop the back off a couple of the buildings to make the courtyard in the middle. And so, Shauna, as you know, you come in an alley and there's this central courtyard. And what that did for these, this collection of seven old buildings is it, it meant that they now have a, a back door, which is a front door onto this courtyard. Oh, yeah. So it made the space in every one of these buildings more valuable because of this. They now also have this courtyard yeah. interface. And sometimes there's the little farmer's market out there. Yeah, we do. And the cute farmer's little market, the fire pit. We do art walks. Art stuff. walks. We do live music on second Thursdays for yeah. art walks. So it's become a little bit of a cultural destination. We installed an art project last year that we call Ghost Cabin that has the little stage and, and um, for live music and um, it's the silhouette of an old pioneer building that we know existed, you know, 20 feet down, 100 or more, 150 years ago. Everyone has to come check it out because one of the things I love most about Liz, but I'm giving her a little, like, push here, is that, like, she does not self-promote. No. Hopefully, this is one Thank of our... You do, you, I'm well, not in a business that actually requires promotion because I am quite bad at it. Well, you, I think you're just humble, and I think you're just comfortable being just gritty and getting the job done but not necessarily needing the recognition for it. 
you know, I want everyone to come see this place because <laughs> the first time I came, it was like a mouth drop type of situation. I thought it was the coolest. And now I'm just so lucky to record the podcast here because I come here all the time. Well, it's super fun for us to have a podcast recording studio. And that's something that we did at the same time as we did the cloud room um, mm-hmm. because we had members who were interested in producing content. We also have band practice studios. Um, so we have 10 bands who rent studios from us. And so we're trying to keep the cultural content component in the project, yeah. And what and about um, Melrose Market? Melrose was uh, yeah, a project that I'm super proud of. And I stalked the owner of these crazy old auto garage um, buildings on Melrose between Pike and Pine for years. He was he was hilarious and uh, fully acknowledged that I was stalking him. He was okay with that. He was, he'd be like, Liz, I can't sell you the properties till I find that ranch in Montana I've always dreamed of. So he lit- we literally at a certain point inked a deal so that I knew I had the option on it. And then it, it took three more years for him to find his ranch before we closed the deal. So that was a that it took me all of the early two thousands up until two thousand and eight when we closed wow. to get my hands on those properties. And then I brought in a partner, Scott Shapiro, and we developed them together. Um, it was a super fun process. And then it was actually Scott's idea. We had this one huge six thousand square foot space. It was either gonna have to be some massive corporate restaurant or we were going to have to divide it up. And Scott had the idea that we could do micro retail in there and it worked out really, really well. So that was 10 years ago. And there there wasn't really, a other than Pike Place Market, there wasn't a market hall per se. And what's great is I think it's a really great mm-hmm. model for any neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're springing up all over the country. And people really appreciate that, you know, farm grown yeah. vegetables oh, for and sure. organic meats. Yeah, and, it feels good. Field cut flowers, yes. I, I agree. And so I know that you also do a lot of investing. What types of projects do you look for? I did more investing before I got really, really busy in real estate, but I did a lot of angel investing in the early 2000s, mostly clean tech. So, you know, everything from solar to um, desalination mm-hmm. to uh, uh, I'm invested in a company in Vancouver called General Fusion that mm-hmm. uh, is so close to literally cracking fusion as our primary source of energy. They, mm. They're super smarty pants scientists. They've been at it for 15 years. There are now some much bigger investors like Jeff Bezos and others who have put money into the company. And so I made my dad invest along with me on that one, which is hilarious. I wish he's I had turning 80 and now he's like, oh my God, I'm going to be dead before these guys actually crack fusion. But I you keep reminding know. him, dad, you helped push it along. We're on the right path Tell here. You to never know. Keep healthy and, and yeah. then he can see it. Yeah. So oh. I do still do some investing in and I'm more focused these days on women-owned companies. Mm-hmm. So Danny Cohn from Cohn and Steiner. Oh, um, yay. Uh, She's a, April think, Pride yeah. from Vanderpop. Yes. Jody Hall from Good Ship. Those, yes. those are all investments that I made. There's always different ways that people kind of give lip service to helping women, but to actually move the needle by investing or by making introductions. It seems like the dream job. Obviously, it's super hard and super difficult, but from the outside, it looks pretty sexy. <laughs> and so what That's advice <laughs> What advice would you give kind of those, the Oprah question of like your younger self or the mini me that's listening, of how think, to break into real estate development? And second question to that is what trends are you seeing in real estate? Okay, I can come to that one in a minute. I think the bootstrap question is an interesting one, and I get it all the time. And, you know, anyone can become a real estate investor. I didn't start with very much money. The myth of the Microsoft millionaire is way overblown. And so I started with a little tiny pile of money that I managed to lose on my first project, per my story about that. But um, 
you know, anyone can bootstrap. It's a question of starting at the scale that you can afford to put a little equity in and uh, knowing that the property is going to appreciate and if it produces rent, it's going to service some debt and then you're going to be able to, you know, refinance it and then you have a little more money and you can put it into a second property. So it may take a really long time. So, you know, a lot of times when people ask me, how, how would you bootstrap in real estate? Um, I don't necessarily know that I did it the right way. I would say sort of keep your day job and start investing Mm -hmm. and then just change the balance over time between your day job and your investments at the point where it's really requiring you full time and you've and you and you've got enough scale that it makes sense to, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's a long game. It's a long game. You just Mm -hmm. exactly. You just said it much more succinctly than I did. It's a really long game and you should never get in thinking you're going to get out, which is why it's insane that my first project was a condo project. I've never done a for sale product since then. Mm -hmm. I now buy, renovate or build and hold potentially forever. People Mm -hmm. always ask me what my exit strategy is and I'm like, I don't have one. I love that. I knew that you were involved in Seattle and kind of on a gajillion boards, but I'm like, holy shit, Liz, you got your finger on the pulse of a lot of different things. And so how do you prioritize your time? And what are you most passionate about right now? And you also didn't answer my other question oh, about, about real, real estate, estate trends. trends. Like, okay. like, isn't there this whole like real estate tech? Yeah. Prop tech is huge. Prop tech. I keep, I mean, I have a few clients who are like, I need a candidate out of prop tech. I'm like, yeah. let me, hold on. I let know. me Google that. Suddenly it's a thing. It's a thing. Yeah. It may totally change the, the, the face of real estate, but probably not at the scale that I do it. I think it's going to change the face of large scale property management and um, large scale asset management. Um, but the stuff that I do is so custom and sort of handcrafted and hands-on that it's interesting, like the kind of property management that I do, which is, okay, we're having art walks, we're booking live bands, we're having an art show, we're organizing an ice cream festival. That's not something that prop tech solves. And so there's this interesting dichotomy between taking all the sort of commodity tasks and um, technologizing them, if that's a word. Right. And then, but at the same time, there's this recognition that property management is getting more hands-on because placemaking is real and they need to actually program places, not just create them, but program them on Which a is continual a people. creative, people-oriented right. That's not something that prop tech is going to solve. You can't outsource that with a You computer. can't outsource that. Yeah. And so it's super interesting. I think part of the business is going to get more human and more creative, and mm-hmm. part of the business is going to get more um, technology-based. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can just use the technology like everyone else to just use the data to tell you more of a story. Absolutely. And then put your kind of twist on it to get the human side yeah. and keep the creativity alive in all your projects. Yeah. And it's that creative part that I think, you know, requires um, mm-hmm. a certain kind of individual or a certain yeah. kind of team to mm-hmm. pull off. Your My other question about the boards about and how the you boards, spend your time. It's a super relevant question. If you're going to do uh, the kind of real estate I do, which is thinking about community development oriented, you know, I think about the business I'm in. I don't build buildings. I make pieces of city. It's like you're adding to the connective tissue of the Mm -hmm. neighborhood or the city. And so you have to think contextually. If you're not super plugged into your city, how do you know what Mm -hmm. you should be making? And so the civic engagement 
is all part of the job. And I think that's an interesting thing for people interested in this kind of real estate to know. And so I don't think of it as separate or extra or a burden. I think of it as part of my job. Like I'm on the board of the DSA now and, you know, and I, and I. Will you tell our listeners what that is? Downtown um, Seattle Association. Mm-hmm. And so. And what the, I, the um, corridor. Yeah. That and whole thing. separately I'm involved in this effort, um, which the Downtown Seattle Association has also become super involved in. We'd like to lid over uh, several blocks of downtown where when I-5 went through in the 60s, it totally disrupted the connections between our uphill neighborhoods and downtown and also the street grid and our transportation grid. Like That decision would never be made today. Everyone in the rearview mirror understands that. And in fact, it was super contentious at the time. And there was very, very powerful opposition to it. But, you know, the feds were determined to come through and there were certain political elements in Washington state that wanted to see it happen. We've stopped cutting through our cities with highways, but we're now entering this era nationwide of repairing the damage. So there are 30, 40 cities around the country that are at some stage of trying to lit over the freeways that are cut through the urban parts of with their like city. parks? Parks, transit stations, mm-hmm. real estate. And um, the water, what about the waterfront? Well, the waterfront needs to go first. And so when we talk about litting the freeway, we're certainly like making extra sure that we're not trying to steal any thunder from the waterfront, which is a more immediate project and it, it's happening. Um, and I think I think it's going to be so fabulous that people can't even imagine. Like, I think what the reality of it is even going to be better than our anticipation of it, if yeah. that makes any sense. I'm so, it's going to I'm be so one of those things where it. we say, oh, my God, this is so fantastic. And then litting over the freeway is going to be the next phase of connecting all those neighborhoods to the waterfront. I love it. I'm excited. I'm switching gears a little bit because mm-hmm. as a recruiter, I always feel like I should link in something around talent. I know that you have a strong eye for talent. You've created a culture within your company. Is there a certain trait that you look for in people that you work well with? This is going to sound pretty formulaic. That combination of creative fearlessness, if you like, or maybe a different way to put it is willing to think about completely different solutions, new solutions to an old problem, like just that out-of-the-box thinking, mm-hmm. combined with... Like going to Microsoft and asking for a sabbatical. sabbatical? That's outside the box? That's outside the box. But, like, you know, what I want my team to do is is to think of brand new ways of doing things and um, because that's kind of where the juice comes from in my mm-hmm. company. But at the same time, they have to have sort of a rigor around um, organization and... Uh, I Okay, this goes back in part to the kind of leader I am, and you will appreciate this because you see every kind of leadership model. I joke when I interview to hire that I am a great leader and the worst manager they will ever have. Mm-hmm. I am the kind of person that runs out in front of the pack with a pitchfork, you know, charging ahead, and I never even look back over my shoulder to see if someone tripped and, and fell in the ditch. And you shouldn't with the right type of person, right? <laughs> but you have to acknowledge your own strengths and weaknesses as a leader to know yeah. how to hire. So you're absolutely right. But it took me a while to figure out that some people have this expectation that you're going to mentor and manage them in a way that another leader would, because mm-hmm. that would be their skill set, but it's not mine. As we get older, like the one thing I've learned, you play to your strengths. Mm-hmm. You acknowledge your weaknesses and you play to your strengths. Yeah. I love that. And I love it when people call them like their ninja skills. Like, what are your ninja skills? Right. Like your superpowers. I, I think I'm pretty your fearless. I'm, uh, 
it, this is true of real estate developers in general, but I think it's it's definitely true of me. I'm not afraid to fail, and I never f- I'm never afraid to bet the farm. Mm-hmm. Like I'm always like, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Mm-hmm. Like I fail miserably. My parents still have a guest room, and I do you care what people think of you? No, I think that's do you, also, is that true? I think it's more true. You're so of nice me. that I'm like, is that because you care, or is you're just mm-hmm. genuinely that nice? I don't. I really don't care what people think. Now, I wouldn't say that that was always true. I've but, never heard you I, say anything um, like other than nice things about other people. You know, I think I don't. I don't want to be an asshole. I want people to to want to do business with me. Yeah. But that's different than caring what people think about the decisions that you make. Yeah. Like there were a bunch of developers in town who early on thought I was a cuckoo bird because I was doing things. And that's still true. Like I will buy a building and do something with it that no one else would do. And I don't care what people think on that level. Does that make sense? Yes. Or the way I conduct my business, I'm going to do it my way. I don't I don't really care what the rest of the world thinks. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm kind of making it up anyway a lot of, a lot of the time. And so... Of course, I care that people think I have integrity or that I'm a nice person to do business right, with. Right, but you don't that... care that they agree with your decisions. Exactly. I like that. I love talking to you. My final question, a couple questions. One is, do you feel successful today? I think I'm finally sitting well with the success that I've had and mm-hmm. doing a better job of letting myself feel good about it. Mm-hmm. And do you, you have guilt? do you have guilt when you like go to Whistler? Or, yeah. Like... So this I've talked to my therapist for years about this. Mm-hmm. You probably can totally relate to this. Mm-hmm. I think people like us who are really driven to excel at what we do, not because we care about what others think, because but once we decide to do something, we want to do it really, really well. We do. We impose guilt on ourselves when we go and take time off and have fun with our friends. Mm-hmm. I suffered four years from this um, feeling that I wasn't working hard enough, mm-hmm. that Um, I was letting things slip, that it was too chaotic, that um, I don't know that I if I went away and had fun, I was going to jinx it. Bad things were going to happen while Mm. I was gone, you know, almost almost to the level of a superstition. Mm. And I know I'm not the only entrepreneur that feels that way. Like we inflict these superstitions on Mm -hmm. ourselves and can't distinguish between like what's true and what's a story. Exactly. And I think I'm finally over it. Chop House Road was a really hard project. And even the two years after that, we had some bumps in the road, you know, just finishing up the construction and getting the right tenant mix in place. And I think I don't want to exaggerate that term PTSD is used for a much more serious situation than just business mm-hmm. stress. But I'm only You're using now exhaling that as a, a little. Yes. Like that, that stress that builds up in your nervous system over a period of decades. Right. Mm-hmm. Microsoft starting a real estate company, doing some really hard projects. That exhale took a mm-hmm. long time. But you for look me. amazing. I always tell you this. Oh, you're I'm always so like, what are you nice. doing with your skin? Well, and just in you the last couple of years, I it's it, you know what I mean? It's going from the top of my head and it's gradually lowering. It's like the tide's going out. And do you do a lot of self care, like to relax? I'm better at it now than I used to be. I'm probably okay. not great at it. But just getting out of town is good for me. I yeah. find that um Travel is very good for my soul. Oh, yeah. That's and, the best. And then, Isn't that why we're doing what we're doing? Yes. To, like, live life. To live right? life. See but, the world. See the world and then come back and be happy yes. to be home. Yes. Right? It's and finding so, that balance. I guess I could maybe answer this, but what fuels you? I love seeing projects done well. So people will credit me with being really creative. And I'll say, no, you know what? Actually, you're confused. I'm really, really good at seeing stuff around the world that I love and getting inspired by it, bringing it back, 
and integrating it into an idea. So sure, I have a driving idea, but I want to give credit to all of those amazing projects I've seen all around the world, or just those amazing cities, mm-hmm. those tiny little streets that I've walked down where the urban fabric has just been so perfect. And I think to put it in a nutshell, I love beautiful, well-crafted cities, and I want to do my small part in making Seattle one of those cities. And so well, we're so grateful, so grateful. And I love having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, everybody go check out Chop House Row, go check out the Cloud Room, obviously Melrose Market. And thank you, Liz. Thanks, Shauna. So it was fun. fun. Always. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.